If you have a Bible with you, please open it to the book of First Timothy, which is slightly different than where we have been, but nevertheless, we're shifting gears a little bit. We are going to take a break from John for about 11 weeks as we study through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, John is a heady book. It is, it is filled, although he is speaking to us about these things that Jesus has done and wrought on the earth. It is a book filled with heavy doctrine and high theology. And so it's good every once in a while to come down from the clouds to take a breath. And we go then to something of, of much more practical significance for us. And I'm not trying to say that John is not of practical significance. It is clearly. But the doctrine of John is sort of put on the ground here for us in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is an eminently practical book as Paul is writing to Timothy about how to arrange and order the church, about what Timothy's job is there in Ephesus. Paul believes strongly in the idea that we are all of one kingdom. It is the kingdom that belongs to Jesus Christ. He is God over all things. He is head and savior of the church. He is the Lord. He is the ruler. He is none less than the very king of kings and lord of lords. As Ephesians 1, 22 through 23 says, God the Father has put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There is one king and one ruler. There is one elder over the church, and that is Jesus Christ. And yet even as Paul understands that, what we find in Scripture is that Paul is incredibly democratic in how the rule on earth gets patterned out. Paul calls on us specifically together to submit to one another in Ephesians 5.21 that we should, according to Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor to each other. And he says that all of us are, to present, uh, are present in the body together so that we can serve one another in that famous body metaphor from 1 Corinthians 12. These are good things. We need to keep these things in mind. We believe in the priesthood of the saints. They're good that we keep these in mind because we need to rely upon one another to do the work of the ministry. It's also good because we realize quite frankly and honestly and openly that in many Southern Baptist churches and many evangelical churches, there is a failure of leadership from the top on down. And not simply a failure where leaders are prone to certain types of sin, where they get a little angry or they, they do things and they speak out of turn or whatever the case might be. We are talking about catastrophic failures in many churches across evangelicalism. Sexual, physical, psychological, and emotional sin yielded from a pastor's authority. Many would argue, and many have indeed worked it out in such a way that the way around this is to pull out of the church, the way around this is to pull out of leadership. Many Southern Baptist churches have worked themselves into such a direction that they want to minimize the actual authority that the pastors have because they have been hurt by pastors so often. This is not what Paul believes that we should do. Paul rightly knew of the responsibility and the role of elders. Paul rightly knew of the ability of those elders themselves to to persecute their own sheep. But his answer is not to remove leadership. His answer is to simply get better leadership. 
Paul knew of such abuse, even here in Ephesus, as he has left Timothy behind in Ephesus, and he will go as he is traveling to Macedonia. He wants Timothy to right the ship there. He knew in Ephesus particularly that there was an opportunity for wolves to grow up among the sheep. Paul said to them in Acts 20, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Paul knew that even amongst the people in Ephesus, even among the people that he was talking to, that there could very possibly arise amongst those people wolves who would do everything they could to make the sheep a feast for themselves so that they would have enough meat, that they would have sheep-skinned wallets and enough wool to dress themselves through a cold winter. They would do everything they could to get everything they could out of the sheep and simply fleece them. What Paul doesn't say to this is, your elders and your leaders are troublematic, and they're problematic, they cause all kinds of frustration, and they can hurt you, so get rid of them. And what he says is, Timothy, you go there, and you get better leaders in place. You train them, and you teach them. First Timothy is meant to show us how the practical working out of the great doctrines of Christianity happen on the ground, amongst us, as individual Christians gathered together in churches. And what these doctrines look like in practice, and how elders specifically facilitate these practices. First, Second Timothy and the book of Titus are oftentimes known as the pastoral epistles. And what that can mean for many of you is that it's written to a pastor from a pastor for pastors, but that's not exactly what it means. It means it's pastoral. It, it, it is Paul trying to lead Timothy, but as Paul leads Timothy, he is also leading you. He's not just leading Pastor Richard and I. He is leading all of us to understand what the role of a pastor is, how a pastor ought to function, and more importantly than that, how the church ought to function together, even with pastors. So he writes to Timothy, Timothy was one of his greatest helps on the mission field. He was a man that Paul entrusted much with. He joined Paul around Acts 16 in Derb and Lystra, and as they went on, he was almost inseparable from Paul. He was with Paul or helped Paul during the writing of 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Indeed, in one of those books, Paul talks about how valuable, how absolutely invaluable Timothy was to him. In the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 19 and following, Paul says this about Timothy. I hope in the Lord to send you Timothy soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. That is high praise. Paul is not throwing that out just randomly. He is quite, quite taken with the work that Timothy has done with him. And so what better man to leave here in Ephesus? Paul knows that there are difficulties in Ephesus. He knows that there are troubles here. And so he leaves his best and most trusted servant there to get these things sorted out. This is a letter to remind Timothy of what Timothy needs to do. And it is a reminder of us as to who we ought to be and who we ought and what we ought to do. So let us read these first 11 verses of Timothy as we talk about the role of an elder. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, 
to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain person, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this. The law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of our God. The first thing I would like to put before you is the position of the elder is one of need. The position of an elder is one of need. Thought is taken up time and time again. I've heard it from unbelievers. I hear it a little bit lower strain from believers, but that somehow the elders are above everybody else, and somehow they're in sort of a different class of people from everybody else. I've, I've had unbelievers say, hey, I know that you're really tight with God, pastor, because you're an elder, so why don't you, you pray for me? And I've had Christians ask me specifically to pray for them, and I have no problem with that. I am a pastor. It is a glory and a, a, a wonderful thing that I get to do to take requests before God. If it is simply because they're asking me and they want to honor me, that's fantastic. I'm happy to pray. If you invite me over to your house for dinner and you say, hey, you're a pastor, you go ahead and you and pray, that's fine. If it's, if it's a way to honor me, that's good. If it's because you think that somehow my prayers will have a better blessing on the food or because my prayers can heal people better, you are gravely mistaken. Listen, my prayers are not like the cat's meow and you sound like a you know, kind of a hairballish type sound, you know? That's not, that's not how these things work. This isn't what we believe. I'm not any closer to God. I'm not any holier or any wiser or any more noble by necessity than anyone else simply because I'm an elder. Now, these things should be true in general. Elders are held up to a higher standard. We should have good quality character. We should have a desire and a proven track record of holiness. But to think that these things are so present in us that we don't have need of God's grace and his kindness and his forgiveness is to mistake our position as elders. Paul here, even in the first two verses, in two verses alone, speaks of his great need of all the things that he and Timothy and by extension I and Richard and by extension all of us need from God. First, he talks about God being Savior. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior. God is a Savior to Paul. He is a Savior to Timothy. He is a Savior to me. He is a Savior to Richard. Every elder that will ever walk through those doors is an elder only because God has first saved him. The elders are always in a position of need. God has redeemed us. He has justified us. He has adopted us. He has called us. He has delivered us. He has forgiven us as sinners. 
we are in no less a position than David who sinks in the mire and cries out for help. Elders are there with everyone else. God is a savior to us. We are not above this. We are not below this. We are precisely here. We need saving. We need saving because we were sinners, because we will remain sinners until Christ carries us home, which is the second thing that he talks about, the fact that Christ Jesus is our hope. Notice Paul doesn't say Christ Jesus, your hope, or Christ Jesus, their hope, but Christ Jesus, our hope. We are not just saved from the things in our past, but we have a glorious future to look forward to. Christ is our hope in many ways. He is our hope of a future free from sin. We look at his existence and we think that is where we want to be, holy and pure and undefiled before God. It is our hope for the end of the injustice that we can't bring about. We look at the lives of our people and we see how they are oppressed by the world and we see how they are oppressed by themselves. We see sin in the midst of our members and even us committing sin against one another. And we realize that there is injustice. There is something here that we want to fix, but we are not in any power to fix. He is the source of our hope for our own glorification, that we can one day be made glorious. We look at Christ for these hopes and elders, as much as anybody, need to look forward to Christ for those things because we can't bring them about on our own. Simply because we're elders doesn't mean that we have the power to make ourselves into what we ought to be. And it certainly means that we don't have the power to make you into what you ought to be. There's no magic wand. There's no magic words that we get to speak that will immediately make everything sink into you and make a fully formed, perfect Christian walking down the road. And so we look to Christ as our hope. But what's more, we don't just look to Christ as our hope, but we need grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. We need grace for God to give us that which we don't deserve. Paul did not deserve to be commanded to be an apostle. I do not deserve to be called as an elder of the church. I don't deserve to be called a child of God. I don't deserve to be called a brother to Jesus. I don't deserve to be, have any of that placed upon me, to have open to me the storehouses of blessing from heaven. And yet God in his grace has given us good things. And God in his mercy has kept bad things from us, those things which are well-deserved, his wrath, his anger, an absence of his very presence from us. And yet, nevertheless, God has given us mercy. Where grace is giving to us, generally speaking, the things that we don't deserve, wrath and mercy go in hand in hand. The fact that he hasn't poured out his wrath on us is a merciful act. It is keeping from us what we do deserve. Lastly, we also need peace from God. Peace is this overwhelming sense of completeness. It's tied into the idea of shalom from Hebrew. That, that you have peace doesn't just mean that you are, are without any sort of confrontation or, or angst from the outside. That, that you can only have peace when there is no trouble coming to you. But peace is sort of this inward understanding of completeness, of, of being put together, of contentment, of rest. It's the kind of feeling you get when you have a large project in front of you and you finally finish it and you look at it and you think it is good. That feeling, not pointed toward that which is outside, but pointed inward as Christ has worked in you. Peace is the sense of Christ abiding with you, present with you, helping you, resting in him and contentment in him. Paul looks at Timothy and he says, you need a savior, you need hope, you need mercy, 
You need grace and you need peace. All of these things you need because you are a man who has needs. You are not a man who has it all together. You are not a man who can lead others to know how they can have it all together. You are standing, as one famously put it, simply as a beggar telling other beggars where they can find bread. Every single one of us is needy, friends. The elders need these things too. Yes, make no doubt, these things are for you. You need a savior. You need hope, grace, mercy, and peace as well. But the elders do as well. To think for even a second that we don't need these things, that we are not sinners in need of a savior, that we are not sinners in need of forgiveness and grace is detrimental both to you and to us. It's detrimental to us because any idiot can be foolish enough to begin to believe their own press. The people who become greatest in authority do so because they are surrounded by people who tell them how great they are and who are refusing to call them out on their sin because all they hear from people is how helpful they've been. Look at what he's done for the church. Look at how he's grown the church. And over time, they start to listen to that and they start to hear it and pride builds them up until God casts them down. It is detrimental to us to think that we are not in need, in grave need from God. But friend, it's not just detrimental to us, it is often and more so detrimental to you. To think of us as outside of need is to cast your sight upon us and not to the cross that stands behind us. It is to begin to put your hopes and your faith in fallible, in wretched human beings to give you what you need instead of on Jesus Christ. Thinking too much of a pastor is a quick and easy way to take your eyes off of Jesus as the source of your salvation. You will still, no doubt, give lip service to that salvation. But your hopes in this world are placed more fundamentally and more formally on the man who stands in front of you preaching the second you think that your pastor stands outside of the need of grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. It is subtle, so you need to guard yourself against it. Placing your faith in me for the growth of the church, placing your faith in me for the stability of the church, placing your faith in me for any good that might come through this church is a foolish and feeble exercise and you will be disappointed. I guarantee it. Friends, know that your elders are in a position of need and pray for them as people who need grace, mercy, peace, saving, and indeed hope. Secondly, what we find here is the purpose of an elder. And the purpose of an elder is nothing but love. It's nothing but love. Now, our culture is all about love, so saying that the purpose of an elder is to promote love is honestly somewhat trite. It, it just kind of, oh, it's love. It's uh, everyone. Everyone loves love. Love is the best. We should all love, right? But it truly is the purpose and the work of an elder to promote love. We promote love, though, in a very specific way. We promote love by teaching, by instructing, by nothing less than doctrine, okay? So many people think that we can only promote love by getting rid of doctrine. What Paul seems to say here to me and to my ears as I read through these verses is that our aim is love and that love can only be accomplished through right and good teaching and right and good doctrine. 
Paul talks about the fact that there are people here who have devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. We don't know what the purpose of all that was. There are some guesses, but all of them are just guesses. They themselves are speculations on what these people were speculating about. Not many people today are taken up with simply repeating myths and endless genealogies when it comes to churches. But it's not important that we don't promote the same kind of things that they promote. Those are just examples of what they're promoting. The problem is this endless speculation rather than the good faith, the good order of the faith that has come from God. Whatever it is that people preach, whatever it is that people teach that lead to speculation instead of the good order of faith that God has provided for us is nothing but wretched teaching. It doesn't fulfill the command that Paul is laying down. Preachers and elders should teach and lead on things that are according to the good order of the faith. And that is simply good teaching that yields well-lived lives in the faith. As Paul says, they should teach things that are in the stewardship from God that is by faith. That is, teach things that accord to a lived life that is filled with faith and in good order. And the core, the center of that well-lived life is nothing but love. It is love. Beautiful, beautiful words in verse 5 the aim of our charge. I like that. Charge is kind of a weird word to use there, ESV, just putting that out there, but I like it because the only thing that I can think of is a guy with a big joust charging at something, right? The aim of our charge is love. What we want to do when we want to knock you off your horse, when we want to hit you down, is simply so that you can be built back up in love. The aim of our forces going forward is nothing but love. What it means, though, is simply instruction. It means our teaching, the things that we are providing for you. The aim of those things, the aim of our doctrine is nothing but love. Every single doctrine is meant to increase your love of God and it's meant to increase your love of your brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean that there's a simple straight line between the things that come out of my mouth and you feeling like you love the people around you more. That's never going to be the case. Sometimes it might hardly ever, but rather that it is meant to fan the flames of love in you. This is why we talk about the Trinity. We don't talk about the Trinity because it's, it's something that is easy to understand. We talk about the Trinity and we talk about it in detail because in order to truly know and love God, you need to know who he is. And talking about the Trinity and thinking through the difficult things of the Trinity ought to make you stand in wonder and awe at the type of God you serve and the type of God who has led you to salvation. Even the driest of doctrines, like the way the church is ordered, why it is ordered the way it is, why it's supposed to function the way it is, are meant to fan the flames of love in you. The church is ordered the way it is, and it's structured the way it is to facilitate unity and ways to deal with problems. Those things in particular are things that if we didn't have them in place would often lead to disunity and a lack of love among people. If we didn't have good order in the church, it would be a free-for-all, which oftentimes leads to chaos and hatred and anger. So even the driest of doctrines is meant to facilitate our love for one another. And today, one of the great problems with preaching and teaching is that it's not really focused on the love you have for others, but quite honestly, simply with you. And people are, are prone to get up in front of people and talk about how much God loves you. And I'm all for that. 
Because friend, God loves you more than you could possibly imagine. As a matter of fact, his love for you is so unfathomable that it ought to make you want to love him more. But we don't ever get there in many churches. What we want to talk about is you. We want to talk about how to address your problems and how to address how you feel loved. So we give pointers and suggestions for how you can have the good life. We talk about ways and means for you to get control of your finances and your marriage. And listen, I'm all about that. I want you to have human flourishing. I want you to have control of your marriage and control of your finances. I want you to know that God loves you. But those are not means, or those aren't ends in themselves, but they are means to loving God, and they are means to loving your neighbor. Why do I care that you have good, godly marriages? So that you can love your spouse, as an example of how Christ loved the church and how the church loves Christ in return. Why do I want you to have good control of your finances? I want you to have good control of your finances, friends, so that you can help fund the mission of God as it goes forward because you love God and you want others in love to come to know that God. The great doctrines of Scripture are not simply meant for you alone, but are meant for you to grow in love for God and neighbor. But this love is not just whatever you want it to be. Paul provides guardrails for what this love is. So the aim of our charge is love, but it's love that issues from certain things. It issues first from a pure heart. A pure heart can mean nothing more than a heart that is filled with the purity of God, that understands the purity of God, that seeks after the purity of God, that's been instructed in the purity of God. One of the first things that comes to mind is Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How can a young man keep his way pure? By storing the word of God in his heart. How can a young man keep his heart pure? By storing his word in his heart. Love, and here I mean absolute true love, is grounded not in the way you feel, not in the way that other people feel. It is grounded in nothing less than the very command of God. To be pure in heart and to have love issuing from that is to be grounded in what God has told us to do. This indeed is a command of God. In John 14, 21, not to leave John for too long, Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Even earlier in talking to his disciples, he told them that they are commanded to love one another. In John 13, 34, he says, a new commandment I have given to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Your love not only marks you out as a disciple of Jesus Christ, it is, because it marks you out as a disciple of Jesus Christ, a command that he places upon you. Love one another. Love must spring from the well of obedience, a pure heart. But secondly, it springs from a good conscience. When he says a pure heart, he means the commandments that God has given you, the things that he has said you have to do and the things that he said you don't have to do. But frankly, there are, I don't know, thousands, millions of decisions that you make through the course of your life that aren't directly commanded in Scripture or directly commanded for you not to do in Scripture. How are we supposed to know what to do in these cases? This is where your conscience comes in. Now, your conscience can never, ever go against Scripture and have you think that that's okay. People's conscience are all kinds of messed up. 
And sometimes your conscience isn't quite in line with what scripture has to say. That's why Paul qualifies it not simply by saying conscience, but by saying good conscience, a conscience that is tempered and bounded by the word of God. That is the kind of conscience that Paul wants you to have. But you need to have a conscience that will guide you and sustain you because when it doesn't go against the word of God, it is unsafe to go against what your conscience says. Paul even says, if you go against your conscience, you have sinned. So, all the questions that might come up. When you and your wife were having a fight, did you answer her too strongly? Should you let your child do this, that, or the other? How much money should you spend on things like entertainment, on cell phones, on Netflix, on cars? How should you commit yourself to doing this thing? How should you vote on this ballot? Should you seek this promotion? Should you put your mother and your father in a home? These are questions that scripture, even in a good concordance, isn't going to have for you. And what Paul is saying is that if your conscience is trained, you can rely upon a good conscience to guide you in that, to do the most loving thing. Lastly, he says, from a pure heart and a good conscience, and lastly, a sincere faith. That love has to be based and grounded in the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. There is nowhere else to turn. There is nowhere else to go. If it is not grounded in faith in Jesus Christ, it is not love, it is sin. It is only through the knowledge and the belief in the work and the life of Jesus Christ that our love has any traction whatsoever. You might see that speedometer at going 112 miles an hour, but you are doing nothing but spinning your tires without Christ to give you a way forward. Christ gives us everything we need. He is all of the provision that we should ever need and all of the provision that we will ever get. You have everything met for you in Jesus Christ. Every need, every want, every desire can be found in him. As we talked about just last week, he is able to provide for you when you believe in him springs and wells and rivers of eternal water rising up in you. And so because of this, he has given you everything you need. You don't need things from other people. You are now free totally and completely to love them as they deserve to be loved. You know how Christ can stand there and say, you have to love your enemy? How can you possibly do that? You can only do that because Christ himself has given you everything you need. And he's promised to give you everything you need into the future so that you need nothing from your enemies. You need nothing from your friends. You have been given everything and therefore you are free to love as you please. Our faith must be the backbone of of our love. Listen, all good teaching, all good instruction, every charge that we give you has to be aimed at love. And great teaching will lead you there. Great teaching will lead you to sit in that seat and think of how you love God, how great and magnificent and wonderful God is. It will lead you in appreciation for the people who are around you. Good teaching might not do that, but at least tries to get there. And any acceptable teaching has that as its goal, whether it's stated or not. And that is to lead you toward better love of God and of neighbor. So if you look even at the book of Romans, Paul lives this out in his own life. The book of Romans is perhaps the greatest and highest book of theology that we could ever hope to have. In it, Paul talks about things like depravity and wrath, justification, propitiation, adoption, reconciliation, Life in the Spirit, election, reprobation, the eschaton, 
These are deep and weighty matters. And yet when he gets to the end of them, he doesn't say, so my lecture is over. If you have any questions, you can see me at Paul, care of the Roman prison, right? He doesn't say that. But at the end of it, he says that he is astonished. He is simply astonished by the unsearchable wisdom and inscrutable ways, the height and the depth of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. He takes time in this letter out of his own personal affection for God to praise him and to worship him. If that is not where doctrine leads you, then one of two things is happening. Either the teaching that is happening is wrong and bad and very, very poor, or your listening is. But either way, it's a problem that needs to be fixed. All good doctrinal teaching, which is what Paul is charging Timothy to do, is meant to lead people toward loving God and loving their neighbors. This is the very purpose of elders. Paul then provides a warning. He provides a warning talking about certain persons who have swerved from these. They've wandered into vain discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand what they're saying or the things that they make these really confident assertions about. I would give you two warnings off of these little verses here. The first one is, you need to be very careful who you listen to. Paul is talking to Timothy saying, Timothy, the way you are going to fix this problem is you are going to make sure that they don't teach a different doctrine. They're not going to teach anything that's sideways. You're going to go and you're going to take command of the situation and under my authority, you're going to tell them what they have to do. But Ephesus in the first century is not Bay City in 2019. I can try all I can within the church to make sure that people preach and teach correctly. And you can try within this church to make sure that I preach and teach correctly. But neither one of us controls what the other one hears when they go out of this building. You have access to just about every preacher and teacher in the world. Every single one of them. We can't police that. So friend, you must. You must pay attention to the things that are coming into your head. You must pay attention to the things that you listen to, to the things that you read, to the things that you see. You must check and make sure that they are in accordance with the doctrine that Paul has laid out here, that they are teaching doctrines that make you love God, that are from Scripture, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from the faith. Secondly, besides being on guard against these things, I'm going to tell a lot of you that you need to stop teaching. You, just, you need to stop. Whether it's on Twitter, whether it's on Facebook, whether it is on the comment section of your favorite web page, there are people who make confident assertions about things they have no idea. They do not know what they're talking about. Do not let that be you. Don't let it be you. If you don't know what you're talking about, friend, stop talking. This is not the kind of thing that Paul puts up with. This is not the kind of thing that he takes lightly. He has left his best man behind him to fix this kind of problem. And yet we don't think it's a problem because we can post anonymously on comment sections on web pages. Jesus might tell you to cut off your hand if that's something that you are prone to doing. I'm going to tell you to at least wrap them up in oven mitts so you can't type anymore. But do something because every time you talk confidently and you assert things that you know nothing about, you are engaging yourself as a teacher. You are telling people what is true and what is not true. And while you have to be able to do that to some extent, to the extent that many people do, 
is outside the bounds of good Christian behavior. And what's worse, you are bringing upon yourself judgment because teachers are judged on a very, very high standard. If you are taking that upon yourself, you are taking upon yourself a position of responsibility and authority you might not be ready for. And the reason why you're not ready for it is because you don't know what you're talking about. So just be careful about that. Just stop teaching. Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the goodness of Christ. But if you don't know what you're writing about, stop writing. Stop writing. The purpose of an elder is love. Lastly, the power of an elder is nothing less than the gospel. The false teachers here are enamored with the law. They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't understand it. We don't really know what's going on. Uh, It seems like these were people who had some sort of Jewish affinity, but they were also Gnostic, which is a long and drawn-out thing that doesn't actually matter for us. What we care about here is that they really cared about teaching the law. They thought that the law was something that was usable by Christians, that we could go back to the law, we can teach the law. And Paul's saying, listen, they want to teach the law, but they've got no idea what they're doing. So again, it's very difficult for us to sort of what scholars call mirror read this, that that we're listening to him and we're trying to figure out what it was that they were doing. We don't know. We do know that they were mishandling the law. Paul then turns around and he says, listen, the answer to this is not to avoid the law. People do two bad, bad things when it comes to the law. They run to the law as though it is part of the gospel or they ignore the law as though it has no impact on the gospel. Paul says you can't do either. The law is good, but he says you've got to understand something. You need to use it correctly. He says something incredibly interesting after that. He says the law is not actually for those who are just. For those who do right, for those who are right, and we might even read in here, for those who are justified in Christ, the law is not of need for them anymore. But he says the law is for the unholy and the profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, sexually immoral people, on and on and on we go. He unleashes a torrent of sins upon them. And he says that is who the law is for. But notice these things aren't just lawless. He goes on in the verses below here to say that these things are also contrary to sound doctrine or, to put it another way, they are not in accordance with the gospel. You see, the law and the gospel are not antitheses of one another. The law and the gospel point in the same direction. But where these people were getting things wrong is that there is no power in the gospel, or excuse me, there is no power in the law. There's no power in the law. They want to preach the law, but they don't know that the law has no power for them. The only thing the law can do is to condemn those who are guilty. The only thing that the law can do is point out that you have failed the law but it has no power to actually do the thing you need it to do. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3.21. Is the law contrary, then, to the promises of God? Well, no, it's not. They're not antithesis. They're not against one another in the gospel. They're not contrary to the promises of God. He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. He says, The law can't give you life. The law can tell you that you're dead. The law can declare the truth that you have failed the law and that you were under a curse. But the law has no means of giving you life. The law has no means of rescuing you from that. The law has no power to do anything that would accord with your salvation. So the law is for lawbreakers, 
But in order to be made alive again, we need the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, of the happy God with which Paul has been entrusted. The law can't make alive, but Christ can. The power of an elder lies only in this. It's in the gospel. It is in the proclamation that Jesus Christ has taken our sin and that he has bore it all the way to the cross, to death, and he has conquered over death by being raised from the grave so that we are no longer sinful before God. We have been justified before God. We have been made right before God. We have new life before God. We have been risen with Christ, as we talked about even in Sunday school this morning. All of these things are true because of the gospel that you can have new life, you can have forgiveness of sins, you can know the mercy of God, you can experience the grace of God only because of the gospel, not because of the law, not because of any words that I might speak to you, not because my words have power in and of themselves, but because the gospel has power in and of itself, not because I speak them or because Richard speaks them, but because anyone can speak them and the spirit will work through those things. This is where my power lies. This is where Richard's power lies. It lies in no place but the gospel. We do not have a power that lies outside of this. No amount of of bullet points for how you ought to live your life has any power to do any good in your life outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed next to it. The gospel is and always will be the center of everything. Paul says, when I went to Corinth, I decided not to speak in terms of rhetoric. I didn't, I didn't use the type of language that you wanted me to use, but I forgot everything except the cross of Jesus Christ. I preached Jesus Christ and him crucified alone. That is where our power lies. And that gospel is not just to get you saved. It is the power to keep you saved. It is the power to change your life. It is the power to remake you in the image of God. It is the power to make you into the very thing that you ought always to have been. That is the greatness of the gospel. That is the power of the gospel. That gospel empowers your love for God and for men. Friends, only faith in Christ has the power to deliver you and the power to keep you from such sin. Trust in him, for as we read this morning, he is faithful and he is true and he will deliver you from sin and trouble. So what do you want an elder to do? What else can we say that could impart life? What else can we do that would give you resurrection? Where else can we turn to show love? Now, friends, elders, even elders, each and every teacher has nothing but the good news of Jesus Christ as power in their lives and in their proclamation. No amount of fancy rhetoric, no amount of emotional pleading is going to do it for you. It is the pure and undiluted preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is fond of saying that you are not to trust in chariots and horses. You're not to trust in the power of the Egyptians to give you a way out of the Chaldean response that's coming to you. Friends, you shouldn't trust in chariots and horses, although I doubt few of you are going to go home and do that just now. But I will tell you on top of that, that few of you, few of you are somewhat geared to trusting in micromanaged lists of how you ought to live your life. Don't trust in that. Some of you are geared to trust in your own good works. Do not trust in those things. Some of you are geared to trust in my good works. I'm begging you not to trust in those things. Some of you are banking on the fact that God is simply merciful, and I'm telling you, you can't simply bank on that. You are to trust 
in Jesus Christ and him alone. You are to trust that his body has been broken and his blood has been spilled to make your sins go away, to cleanse you from everything that you have done wrong. This is the power of the gospel. And as we come now to a time of taking the body and taking the blood, we are reminded not simply, not simply of the proclamation of it, but we get a beautiful demonstration of it that as the blood is spilled out, it is poured into cups, and as the body is broken, it is distributed to all, so that we all, from one body, might partake and be nourished by the grace of Jesus Christ. As we prepare to do that, let us take the meal and give glory to God for his mercy, his grace, and his peace. Let us pray. Father, how merciful you are to us. To love sinners by giving for our sin, your son, is an absolutely unthinkable act. It is grand in its scope, as all nations and tribes and tongues will respond to it, but it is also so narrow as it deals with us as individuals. It heals us. It demonstrates your love for us. It promises your blessing to us. May our time in your word cause us to love you and one another more. Build us up into the unity of the body of Jesus Christ for your glory and our good. Amen.